Here we are, day 10 of National Podcast Post Month, a.k.a. Napod POMO, one-third of the way through the month, one-third of the way through our episodes. This is a follow-up to the episode we released yesterday, where we inducted the Lone Ranger into our lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame. And if you listen to that show, you now know who our next inductee is, and that is the Green Hornet. But before we dive into that, just want to tell a little story. I went to a comic convention in Chicago. I forget which one. If it was C2E2 or Chicago Comic Con. And I attended a panel celebrating the 80th anniversary of Batman. And they had a lot of writers, a lot of artists up there talking Batman. But one of the things that practically made me do a backflip in my chair right there in the audience was all these creators... They cited three characters who they believed were influences on Batman. And those characters were the Shadow, the Phantom, and the Green Hornet. And that was a thrill for me because, well, who were the three out of the first four characters we inducted? The Shadow, the Phantom, and the Green Hornet. All three of whom we said in those shows and in this one that we thought they were influences on Batman. So it's kind of Neat to see that thought be reinforced independently and coincidentally at a comic convention. Kind of helps me believe that we know what we're talking about here at Geekville Radio. So without further ado, let's go to Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame, our fourth inductee, The Green Hornet. Geekville Radio. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, Geeks and Geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. And we have our fourth edition here of what we like to call the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame. And I think this is going to be another episode that's going to be kind of near and dear to our hearts here. And in case you couldn't tell from the intro, we, I'll, I'll let my co-host in crime here uh, introduce this next episode inductee into our lesser known geek hall of fame crazy train jonathan bullock all aboard ladies and gentlemen yeah i think the uh, theme song gave it away uh that of course is the flight of the bumblebee written by a great russian composer named rimsky korsakov as performed by the jazz legend al hurt and it was uh of course the theme song for one pretty well-known tv show from the 60s called the green hornet that is our next inductee i think when you and i discussed um some of the, the characters that were going to definitely make it Green Hornet was on, you know, high on both of our lists. Mm-hmm. And we kind of mentioned in our last episode, we just kind of felt we probably needed to do the Lone Ranger first because as we get into the body of this and we talked about it in that episode, if you want to refer back to episode three, where we talk about the Lone Ranger, the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet were created by the same uh, creative team. And in their own shared universe, they are actually related which was mm-hmm. kind of a, a first, you know, we're talking well before the MCU. So, um, right. When, when really, when it comes down to it, we're talking before Superman and Batman and all the superhero yeah. origins. It's one of the reasons why we've been doing this show is a kind of show how many of the tropes that are used in comic heroes today, where those might've had their roots. And like you said, this really was one of the first examples of there being a heritage. And of course, the Lone Ranger was born out of the love that had been burgeoning for the Western. And because really, when you in, in the 30s, you still had a generation that would have remembered those days in the late 1800s, early 1900s, mm-hmm. where what became known as the, the Old West was contemporary. And I think really what happened was George Trendle and Franz Stryker, they had their hit on their hands with the Lone Ranger. So they thought, well, uh, how can we continue this? How can we branch this off and, and make other characters? Now, if you need more background on George W. Trendle and Franz Stryker, again, go back to the previous episode, episode three in the Lone Ranger. We delve a bit into their background uh, and where they came to develop the Lone Ranger. 
but it is the same creative team, and they came up with the idea of something more contemporary. Instead of it being set in the Old West, it was set in what was modern times then, meaning the late 1930s, early 1940s, and they went on to create the character of Britt Reed. And Britt Reed's father, Dan Reed, was the nephew of John Reed, a.k.a. the Lone Ranger. Now, this really, I don't think, was driven home that much. Uh, Certainly, I don't think really in the the radio show. Uh, We'll get to the TV show in a little bit. But Britt Reed, by association, would have been the Lone Ranger's grand nephew. And the way this was set up was kind of a similar theme in that they used a lot of the music. Flight of the Bumblebee, like Train said, was an old piece that uh, you said it was uh, written by Russian, right? Yeah, Rimsky-Korsakov. I've known that melody ever since uh, first listening to orchestra music, I think, in, uh, yeah, I think in my grandmother's house in Chicago. I think she had one of those old old turntables, but there was a movement in the late romantic period of, of, of what we call classical music. Now I mm-hmm. uh, think uh, this was, that would the, the, the romantic period was the period of uh, Claude Debussy and, and uh, Richard Strauss and Felix mm-hmm. Mendelssohn and those type of composers. There was a group of seven very popular Russians that came on the tail of, of Tchaikovsky and they were called the Russian seven. Rimsky Korfakov was one of those seven. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. I think <laughs> we stepped out a little bit from geekery, but there's a little music history for our listeners. Yeah, just, yeah. You know. <laughs> but I think when I first heard "Flooded Bumblebee," I think I heard it on the piano. Uh, it yes, may have yes. even been um, who was that? Uh, Victor Borga. I think I first heard Victor Borga do it. Um, ah, really? Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, back <laughs> back to uh, Green Hornet. <laughs> um, much like Lone Ranger. Green Hornet used these classical pieces for their incidental music, so they wouldn't have to worry about, you know, paying any writers or anything like that. And as we discussed in our Lone Ranger episode, the Lone Ranger owned a silver mine, hence why he was able to fashion his silver bullets and all that. Well, Dan Reed, the Lone Ranger's nephew and the father of Britt Reed, inherited that mine from the Lone Ranger. And I don't think it's explicitly been said, at least from what I've been able to piece together, and certainly I'm open to correction. Uh, Look us up on geekfulradio.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Geekful Radio. I don't think it's explicitly stated whether Britt's grandfather was the brother of the Lone Ranger that died in the Lone Ranger's origin that we spoke uh, of last episode. Do you know about that or... I believe that it is the case. Uh, Charles or George, depending on the source materials you brought up in that episode, you know, okay. was the was the leader of the group of Rangers that were gunned down by the Cavendish gang. Okay. And of course, John was a sole survivor. Daniel was the son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so obviously when he was killed in this ambush, he left behind a widow and, and an orphan son. And then the mother died. I think I related this in, once again. I think I related this or uh, in in the last episode, Lone Ranger. I cannot remember. Forgive me, folks. Mm-hmm. But that was a storyline in the radio show, and was one of the first characters that the Lone Ranger unmasked for was Daniel, and said, mm-hmm. "I'm your uncle." You know, uh, and this was only because the woman that had taken Daniel in once he was orphaned because his mother died as well after his father did, and he was completely orphaned, no parents. Uh, she took him in. She figured out who John Reed was, who the Lone Ranger was, and on her deathbed confided in him, this is your nephew. And then, you know, that became one of the first examples and one of the only examples in the Lone Ranger of, a, of an overarching storyline as opposed to, a you know, a bad guy of the week kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And, and as you brought up, the family fortune goes directly back to this silver mine that the Lone Ranger John Reed had. And of course, I'm sure you're leading up to what then Britt did with this money from the silver mine, but I'll let you go ahead and do that. Right. Uh, Britt's father founded a newspaper uh, called the, uh, the Daily Sentinel. So he kind of became a, a publisher out of all of this. And it is that paper that Britt inherits at, at some point in his uh, adolescence to uh, adulthood, right? It's uh, 
around the time he becomes a young man, right? Right, because by the time that you get to the to the, the Green Hornet proper, uh, we're talking all backstory now. He's early thirties, you know, late twenties, early thirties. He's a young man. The father is passed away at this point, so the running of the newspaper is completely on his shoulders. He's the publisher and the editor. So, mm-hmm. um, once again, to as we do often when we do lesser known geek hall of fame, we talk about tropes. I've heard of a few heroes that worked in the journalism field before that also had all three goes as superheroes. Have you heard of a few of those? Uh, let's see, uh, Clark Kent. Uh, uh yeah, <laughs> that Peter was Parker. what I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just a few, right? I mean, and once again, I think it's it, it's simple. Mm-hmm. If what's one of the things that all media outlets cover? Crime. Mm-hmm. What do superheroes fight? Crime. Okay, not a hard jump, you know. So. Right. Right. But they obviously, like you said, inspired two of the most well-known and beloved superheroes of all time, at least in that aspect, Superman and Spider-Man. Right. They, that mm-hmm. trope, folks, it came from the Green Hornet. There you go. Now, one of the things that I found interesting, and it had carried over into later incarnations, because we'll get to the infamous TV show in a bit, one of the things that was in the intro for the radio show was that the Green Hornet, quote, hunts the biggest of all game, public enemies that even the G-Men cannot reach. Now, <laughs> the G-Men, I mean, uh, well, not only to hear George Jones sing about them in White Lightning, uh, that's the FBI, <laughs> right? FBI. Right. G being short for government, you know, and obviously that's the FBI. They only go after people who've committed federal crimes, so they're usually pretty big baddies. And... uh there was definitely in that era, I think, a romanticism about uh, the police in, in in general, but especially federal agents. And even even I think to, by today's standards, obviously, if the FBI is looking for you, it ain't the same as if your local yokel, your county mounties, hunting you down, right? Right. Because <laughs> right. it's worth mentioning uh, if uh, any of the younger generation is listening to this uh, about the government. The first ever director of the FBI was a man named J. Edgar Hoover. That's one of those names maybe you have heard but may not know the exact history of. He was the director for the FBI under Calvin Coolidge, and he held that title all throughout Richard Nixon in the late 60s. That's a guy that was very good at his job. (laughs) If you've ever been to Washington, D.C. and gone to the FBI building, it's called the J. Edgar Hoover building. (laughs) (laughs) Wonder why. <laughs> and the other really thing to bring up about Green Hornet was he did have his accomplice who kind of came more to prominence, I think, during the TV show. But yeah, I- in, in the original origins in the, the 30s, it was described that Britt was traveling in the Orient and he had saved the life of a man named Cato and that became his partner. Now, during the 1940s, obviously World War II happened. We were at war with the Japanese, so the creators kind of changed Cato's nationality secretly, not really overtly. It was just they just kind of retconned it to him being Korean instead of Japanese. Japanese, and this is important because we're gonna we're gonna come back to that uh, in a little bit. But they obviously did that to you know not face backlash from. You know, potential, you know, rah rah America stuff. Right. And well, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to to make the hero out of someone who you're currently at war with. Right. Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I, it is possible. I think that we probably, as a, as a race of, of human beings, need to be more open minded. But I understand if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Right. Right. Uh, no, no nation or ideology is is a monolith to an individual, and vice versa. But People are really dying. So at that point in time, I get it, you know? Right, right. And Cato was uh, a master engineer, and he helped trick out Brit's limo and dubbed it the Black Beauty. And that's kind of where the setup was for fighting crime. Now, the way the story goes in the radio show, he and Cato were out in the Black Beauty when a gunfight broke out between rival gangs. And... They tried to escape, but that car was seen uh, at the at the scene of the crime. So they knew that, well, okay, well, we can't go driving around in this thing now because we're directly connected to uh, a crime, crime here. Crime. And that's kind of where they donned the, 
alter egos, so to speak. It's like, ah, okay, well, what if we're criminals and we'll try to join criminals, but really we're fighting criminals? And right. that's really a weird way of explaining it, but you know, that's kind of how they orchestrated their their gimmick, so to speak. I don't know if that's the best way to put it. Am I, am I making sense here, Trent? Yeah, yeah, the concept was they, they could publicly allow the media and the police to despise them because they were he was a crime lord. He was a criminal. But it also gave him access to the crime world, and then he would turn around and be an information to uh, one of the other major characters, the district attorney, Hanlon. Um, and they bring this up in the intro to the television show and they bring it up often in the radio show. There were very few people that knew the true identity of Cato and the green Hornet. They didn't know it was Cato and, and, and Britt Reed, but DA Hanlon was one of those. And I think, uh, Britt's, uh, secretary also yes. knew, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was pretty much it. And I, I know that I had in, in, even before I started doing my research for this show, I had seen some documentaries, and things about the Green Hornet, and it was brought up by Stryker, who wrote all the Green Hornet shows, just like he did the Lone Ranger. Quite the busy man, if you think about it. That's mm-hmm. a lot of writing. Uh, hey, good for him, man. He was staying gamefully employed. He had a wife and kids to feed. Um, yeah. Hey, and but, if you love doing it, you know, more power yeah, to him. Hey, hey who, who who doesn't want to get paid to do what they love, right? Right. But um, he he had felt because by this time when they got into the storyline you were beginning to see the beginnings of Batman and Superman and stuff. He felt the police commissioner, chief of police trope had been done to death. And so he said, I need somebody who is obviously involved in the legal justice, you know, criminal justice system that could be a high enough up individual that if a vigilante hero were to feed him information or give him criminals, he could make sure justice was served within the bounds of the law. How do I do that? without making the police commissioner or the police chief. Well, mm-hmm. the next best thing's district attorney, right? The prosecutor. Right. And that's thus why Hanlon is the DA as opposed to the chief of police or the police commissioner, a la Jim Gordon or, you know, whatever. Right, right. But I do think that that's once again a trope. Uh, even though Clark Kent doesn't work with the police like that, he still has Perry White, you know. Mm-hmm. He, I think I think that, that, that the, the, the DA Hanlon character – is a trope for that paternal, older establishment represents the law. And I say that in air quotes. Uh, you know, I think that that's especially in early comics, but even in today's comics, there's almost always a character like that for a single titled uh, hero. You know, if they have their own individual title, mm-hmm. I, I think I think you understand what I'm saying. I mean, I think Hanlon right. was kind of the truth for that, you know? Right, right. Almost kind of the... Uh, um where the lesson might be learned, like if there's a lesson for the show, you know, there's mm-hmm. it's that mm-hmm. type of authority figure that might sum up everything. You right. know, and that and that kids is why you don't throw power lines into lakes or something like that. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's the Jim Gordon. He's the Perry right. White. Uh, he's he's the Uncle Ben. He's the you know whatever you want to whatever you, you name me a comic book character, and I probably can a well known one, and I probably can find you a character in their story. That's one of their supporting characters that fills that role. I mean, Matt Murdock. It's uh, what's the priest's name? The father at the, at the, at the you know the Catholic church he goes to. I mean, they, all right, of them right. have them, right? They all have one. Uh, I mean, you know, probably the only ones that don't are I can think of off the top of my head is probably Punisher. But Frank is so out there, <laughs> you know. I don't right. know if Frank would have one because I don't know if Frank even has his own moral compass. Well, he does. I, I, yeah, I just. And, but you get, <laughs> yeah, and with Punisher, you know, it, it's it kind of depends on the writer. I mean, there there were all right versions of the Punisher that believed he was talking to God. So sure, and if it's preacher, he's talking to his conscience, which just happens to manifest itself as John Wayne, circa Red River. But you know, hey, to each his own, right? <laughs> right. But the last thing really to bring up about the the radio show, uh, it did go through the 50s, and I don't think it really talked about what the Black Beauty was, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute because I think we're both enough car guys that we'll, we'll geek out over the right. Black Beauty when we get to it. But it's also worth mentioning, uh, much like the Lone Ranger in the 1940, I think it was 40 or 41, there were feature film serial adaptions mm-hmm. and unfortunately uh george trendle did not like the versions of the lone ranger 
that were presented. And I, you know, it's not really, I think they were necessarily that bad, but they just weren't his creation. You know, it wasn't John right. Reed. They, they were different characters, diff, you know, and, and, and the whole different thing. I think that's really what his beef was. Mm-hmm. So he went to Universal Pictures and had them do a, a series of two serials called The Green Hornet and The Green Hornet Strikes Again. And shortly after that, like like we said before, you know, the world's at war and such. Cato uh, gets, gets uh, changed to being Korean. And really around the time the 1950s come about, that's really obviously when TV becomes the norm. <laughs> and I don't think that there was ever truly a last episode but uh that's another thing i haven't been able to get confirmed in my research so certainly uh if anybody out there is uh well versed in the green hornet radio show uh, definitely let us know if there was ever a actual last episode on that now uh that kind of brings us to the relaunch that happened in the 1960s and i don't think it's any secret you know batmania had hit with the adam west tv show and that became a hit. So, of course, once again, we got this hit in our hands. How can we continue that? And the TV execs uh, turned to Green Hornet. So, Train, I know you know a lot more about the TV show than, than I do. So, I'll just uh, give you the reins, let you have the, the floor here to talk about the TV show. Well, yeah, well, you, you kind of summed it up that William Dozier, who, of course, is the, the creator of the Batman series, the television series, the, you know, the 1966 Adam West television series. He was charged with this, and the Green Hornet was a, a radio hit, so he decided to make it into a show as well. And um, I think something that needs to be brought up, for those of you who have watched Batman and Green Hornet, though they were contemporaries, and they were a shared universe because there was a crossover episode where half of it was on the Green Hornet and half of the, other, the second half was on the Batman series. Batman was definitely more popular mainstream and it also had a much longer run i think green horn only ran for like one season or, or, or two seasons most where batman ran for three so um and batman also had, had had a lot of success obviously at that point in comic books whereas not so much for green horn it was just mostly a, a radio and the saturday morning serial character um there was a different approach that dozier decided to take with green hornet one of the things, and depending on what school or camp you're in, uh, uh, <laughs> you either love or hate the campiness of Batman. Um, I think for the listeners that don't know and people who don't know, they need to understand the the idea behind making the Batman series camp was a conscious decision by mm-hmm. the by the showrunners. Dozier, Adam West, everybody involved, Romero, they all were on board with that. In the 19s, mid-1960s, we're talking the beginning of pop art and Andy Warhol and that kind of stuff. Camp and what they called high camp was actually seen as an art form. It was seen as you know a, 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 a high art form that was satirical, kind of poking fun at all the tropes. And so it was a conscious effort by the, the showrunners to make the show camp. I think a lot of people look back at Batman and think – Oh, that, that's how silly they were in the 1960s. No, no. They were trying to be that silly. It wasn't like uh, looking back at it now. Like we look back at like Leave it to Beaver and talk about how, how it's kind of silly by today's standards, you know? Right. And then I think people try to apply that same kind of logic to the bat. No, it was that was planned. Right. And, to right. Ca- um, you know, I maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but we, we recently did our episode of the nostalgia trip talking about the monkeys about how that may have been inspired by the Beatles hard days. Now, well, it wasn't, it it may not have been, it was, but um, you know, those kind of musical comedy things became pretty common. And really Mm -hmm. we're also talking the recent change of comic books going from something serious and violent and scary and people actually thinking that Russians were using it to brainwash the the youths. Uh, But anyway, yeah, it's a valid point. But but we're at a point here where comics were really lightened up to make them more children and family friendly. So that also may have been part of that trying to make right. things a high art by doing it through comedy. Right. And, and to use the monkey analogy, I think the monkeys was somewhat camp as a television series, not as a band, but right. as a television. And I, once again, I think that was planned. 
by the showrunners. In the mid-1960s, camp was the cool new thing with the youth. It was, you know, I mean, so, but but to get back to Green Hornet, Dozier, who had created this hit with Batman, decided to delineate it from the, because for the non-comic book people, all they know is these are two comic book vigilante masked hero types. They don't understand that there's any difference. And so to create a difference between the two, they did the Green Hornet straight. It's not meant to be camp. You know, it's meant to be seen much in the same light of like a law and order or a CSI today as a serious crime drama. Do you see what I'm saying when I, when oh, I make that yeah. analogy? To- yeah, absolutely. It's one of the many ways they would go to try to keep them separate. So you didn't think one was a takeoff of the other. Mm-hmm. Which I think most fans of both series um, enjoyed the crossover. But for me personally, and I was a fan, big fan of both, it did not work as well as it should. And I think that's part of the reason why. Because one existed in this camp world and the other existed in what was supposed to be more based in reality. And it, it's we talk about on Examining the Dead. We talk about on Geekville proper. Comedy and horror are often combined. But it takes a, it takes a special kind of talent like a Sam Raimi and a Bruce Campbell to pull it off. Right. You know, it doesn't always work. Um, and so, you know, I, I wonder if – Maybe the reason why Green Hornet had the shorter run to Batman was because it wasn't camp and camp was so in vogue at the time. Yeah. You know, um, I agree. maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I, I for me personally, uh, the, 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 the show, of, you know, for this is about Green Hornet. I'm pretty sure most of our listeners know this, but those that don't, uh, uh, a young Hollywood sex symbol type up and coming actor named Van Williams was hired to play the Green Hornet, play Britt Reed. Um, and when did we lose Van? Just a few years ago, I believe. He, he very, passed a few years. Very recently, yeah, just within the last couple of years. And he'd been right. married, I, I mean, believe, to the same woman like since before he became famous. Which is, if you know Hollywood marriages, that's that's in and of itself <laughs> mm-hmm. unique, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, and he was hired to play the Green Hornet, Britt Reed. And then what probably, for most historians and, and people today, what really separated... The Green Hornet was the casting of Cato, which for those who don't know, if you don't know, I wonder, are you, have you been living under a rock, was a very young, at the time unknown or fairly well unknown to the American audiences, Bruce Lee, and his first major role to in anything. He hadn't even gone back to, to Hong Kong yet and become a, Hong, become a star in his, in his uh, you know, no, it was not his native home because he was born in the United States, but where he was raised in Hong Kong. Um the, the I think part of the reason why <laughs> uh, uh, Cato was Japanese, as you spoke about, they, they changed his nationality during the war, was Cato was described uh, in the radio shows as being a judo master. Now, for those of you that don't know and don't listen to our wrestling podcast, I myself am a judoka, which is the term for a judo practicer or player. Uh, I'm a black belt in judo, first on. Uh, I've been involved in judo since I was about nine or ten years old. My father is a black belt. I'm oh, sorry, he's a brown belt. Uh, he's been involved in judo since he was in high school, and he's now almost 80. So um, uh, judo is a Japanese art. Judo is Japanese for gentle way. Um, I think that's probably why he was chosen to be Japanese uh, more than anything else was I think that the, the creator probably did a little research and said, oh, judo is a Japanese martial art. And you have to remember, in the 1940s and 50s, and in, even, in, even until recently with the advent of MMA, there was always this air of mystery about Eastern martial arts to the Western world. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're you're a guy who grew up watching and, and being involved in geek culture. Don't, could you agree with that with that with that statement? That I mean, up until recently, there was just really an air of mystery about the Eastern martial arts to the, oh, the yeah. North American yeah, I audience. Mean, and the UHF stations. I remember uh, Channel Sixty or Channel Sixty Six. I think Sunday mornings, mm-hmm. right about the time they had the Godzilla movies, they'd also have some sort right. of chop sake with you know with the with mm-hmm. the bad dubbing and the guys going, ha, ha, you know, and right, guys right, yeah. kicking the, other people's arms off, you know. Yeah, the seven chambers and Shaolin monks and that kind of stuff, right? right. Exactly. Now, besides so besides being a judoka guy, which is why I liked Kato, as a martial artist myself, Bruce Lee is the man. Okay, he Bruce Lee. The more I studied him. 
I don't disrespect him as a marshal. I respect Bruce Lee as a man. He is yes. one of my heroes. I cannot underscore that enough. Every aspect of his life to me uh, is is something I strive for. The, he was an amazing man, and um, he was a true Renaissance man. And I think that he was a great father. I think he was a great husband. I think he was a great actor. He was a great martial artist. He was a great spokesman for physical fitness. He he had a degree in philosophy, so he was an educated man who thought deeply. He was a religious man. He was just – I often say, to give you an idea of, of my personal um, feelings about Bruce Lee, and I say this with no compunction. I'm not joking when I say this. When I say when – I, when, I, when I'll say to people – what if there really were any real superheroes and Bruce Lee doesn't count? We already have ha- – he is a superhero. Right. To me, Bruce Lee is legitimately – and I'm not saying that – I'm kind of laughing when I say it, but I'm not meaning to laugh. Bruce Lee is probably as close as we're ever going to see in the real world to what, a, what we think of as a comic book superhero. If you understand and study his life, he really mm-hmm. is. But this was – if you know anything about Bruce Lee, his – he always – being an American, being born in America, coming back to America – from being raised in Hong Kong to to get into because he came here to go to college, you know, to to get his degree in flight. He went to University of Washington uh, to get it. Um, he when he got into acting, he had a firm belief that the reason that Western culture feared and did not and dis, distrusted Eastern culture was they just didn't know anything about us about them, and yep. that. A lot of that was because most Eastern cultures were very isolationist, and mm-hmm. he wanted to give the world an Asian hero. He wanted to give the world a person who didn't look like them, didn't sound like them, came from another part of the world from them who they could get behind. This was a very motivating factor for Bruce, and Cato was the start of that. He's joked, and once again, I, like I said, I, I cannot underscore how much I respect Bruce Lee. He had a great sense of humor. He joked when he got cast because I really think the only reason I got cast because they they auditioned hundreds of Asian actors, and he was the only one who could say Brit Reed residence and didn't sound like he was needed to be dubbed in. Right. <laughs> that was his joke. You know, that's how Cato always answered the phone because in his alter ego, Cato was Brit Reed's butler or valet, whatever you want to call it. And he joked that, that was the only reason he got cast. He was the only Asian actor who could say Brit Reed residence in clear English. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even he had a sense of humor about it. But um, Bruce kind of changed with the show how I think fight choreography. We talked about with with the Lone Ranger when we talked to that show that some of the fight stuff that that um, Clayton Moore and the stunt coordinator did are still fight techniques that are used to this day in television and movies. I think much can be said the same can be said for Cato and Bruce Lee's portrayal of him. He they didn't have a fight choreographer for the show. Bruce right. was the fight choreographer. They'd say just go out there and do what you do and make it look good. And because Bruce had a background as 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 a as a dancer, he was a dancing champion. Uh, I think Bruce always had a, a, a an idea for panache and for for showmanship. I, I think Bruce didn't fight that way. Bruce realized that that's just fluff for the for, for show i mean when i fought i think he i mean if you understand jeet kundo you you understand it's basically the path of least resistance whatever's most effective mm-hmm. but he understood for the camera i gotta i gotta ham it up i gotta make it look cool and he did and 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 so much so that this was a show now this happens nowadays and it's because we live in a, the digital age where it's easy to access media television shows and movies from other parts of the world that was not very easy in the 1960s, but the Green Hornet, an American show, actually became popular in Hong Kong, mostly because of Bruce Lee being the co-star. At so much so, in many circles over there, it was called the Cato Show, not the Green Hornet Show. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. And, uh, it, it eventually led to Bruce going back to Hong Kong, working with the Hong Kong directors, building his reputation as a movie star before he came back over here to the States in a joint a co-production with a, a Hollywood studio and a Hong Kong studio to do, you know, Enter the Dragon, which is, you know, sadly the last film he did. Great movie. I couldn't recommend it enough. I, I know you're a fan of Enter the Dragon. John Saxon, uh, mm-hmm. Bruce Lee. Just, I mean, just a great movie. It's just a great yeah. movie. Imagine James Bond if he was an Asian martial arts expert. You pretty much got what – am I wrong in making that comparison? No, no, exactly I mean, right. Com- complete with interchangeable arms on the bad guy. 
I mean, but it's it's an espionage story. He's going in mm-hmm. undercover, but we're we're here to talk about the Green Hornet. But essentially, the Green Hornet's what led to all that stuff. Right? Was it because it opened? It, and Bruce had already become, you know, well known within the Halloween community. He was the the he was the the martial arts instructor to the stars. He was already friends with guys like Steve because they were his students. It's guys like Steve McQueen, guys like James Coburn. James Coburn had already got him on a, a guest shot. Uh, on on the television show he was doing at the time, and I cannot remember the name, Long Shadow or something like that. I can't remember the name of it. But if you watch that one episode, Bruce Bruce's character is talking about the martial arts in it. And if you've read the Tao of Jeet Kune Do and you've and you've read Bruce's writings, he's essentially doing a bunch of exposition in the television show, explaining his thoughts on martial arts. But it was only mm-hmm. one show. He got to show it in practice on the Green Hornet. And I think that is an interesting dynamic. It's probably we, – we talked about – when we talked about the Lone Ranger, we talked about how Tonto and Lone Ranger were actually partners. They were not – Tonto wasn't a sidekick. I, don't, I never saw Kato as a sidekick either. Did you? No, no. He, it's almost in the same vein. I mean Robin is probably the biggest example of a sidekick, but you know, I think it might be more comparable to, like you said, you know, the uh, – uh, the partner who might be able to go in places where the hero couldn't, if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah, I think the analogy I made during Lone Ranger, and I think this applies to Cato and Greenhorn too. It, it's it's not Batman and Robin. It's Batman and an adult Dick Grayson and Nightwing. It's more that dynamic. That's probably better. Yeah, that's yeah, probably a better way you to know, put it. It was funny because obviously looking at Britt Reed's background, he was a trained fighter. He had no military service that they ever they ever brought up on the radio show or in the or in the comics or on the television show. He was just rich and smart. So yeah, when the physicality came, Cato was the one that did the physical stuff. You know, right? That's what he was there for. I think once again you got the same creative team where you have some people in today's society going, "Well, look at that, a white guy bossing around a person of color." I think you're missing the point. I don't think Britt Reed saw Cato as a, as, a, as, as a subordinate. I think he saw him as an equal, much like I think John Reed saw Tonto as right, an equal. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're trying to apply today to today's social slash political slash moral climb on something that and saying, well, that's that's why it was in the 1960s. I think you're wrong. I, I just do. I think that Cato and Green Hornet saw each other as equals and they were a cool team. You know, I mean, Cato understood that Brit was not a, a, a skilled hand-to-hand combatant as him, so he created tools for Brit to use. Because as Seth brought up, Cato was also a master engineer. He built the he he tricked out the Black Beauty. He made all these cool and it was the Hornet Sting. Once again, another trope. The Hornet Sting was a, a sonic weapon that confused and disabled and knocked opponents uh, unconscious. Green Hornet had a no-kill clause, just like the Lone Ranger. Yeah, he had guns, but the guns did not shoot bullets. Mm-mm. No. Once again, we brought this up with the Lone Ranger. It's a, it's a trope here. I mean, the no-kill clause, I mean, obviously Batman is the most famous of all the comic book heroes to have that, but most of them have it. You know, they really do. And even the ones who don't, like a Captain America, Captain America's only going to kill in time of war. You know, he's right. going to do all he can not to kill the bad guy. He's going to try not to. He's going to try to not kill people. So, you know, I think that um, The Green Hornet is a really easy show to binge. I would strongly suggest to binge it. Uh, I can't remember where it was the last time I saw it. I want to say at one point it was on Hulu, but it might not might, might be on there anymore. I, I, I'm sorry, listeners, I didn't do my, my homework before this. It's easy to binge because, like I said, it's only one, one season, one and a half seasons. It, it's well worth it, um, in my opinion. If nothing else, for the in my opinion, the second greatest theme song ever for, for mm-hmm. a hero. Um, one of the one of the things you'll notice in the show, and I didn't even see this. Talk, I didn't even realize this until it was pointed out in an interview I saw with Van Williams. They they had a very stylized mask because the costumes that they wore when they went out to fight crime was very simple. The Green Hornet wore a business suit with a green overcoat, a green fedora cap, and a green. Not a Harlequin mask, but it was like a, a wraparound green mask with a stylized hornet symbol right in the middle between his eyes. And Cato wore a black chauffeur's costume with a black mask, just like the green mask the Green Hornet wore. And uh, the masks that both of them wore were very stylized in the first few episodes. And both Bruce and Van complained about it 
reducing their vision and it kept sliding down. So if you, as you watch later episodes, you'll notice they look much more ergonomic. They change the look. They don't look as cool in my opinion, but I can understand for actor safety probably was a good idea to change them. I, that's just a little trivia. I didn't know if you knew that one or not. I did not know, but it was, uh, in, you know, kind of similar in style to the classic black Lone Ranger mask, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It was just uh, like a hard plastic or some material like that, you know. And like I said, it wasn't like Britt was getting in a lot of fisticuffs, you know. Um, Britt was a guy who I think the Green Hornet would try to outsmart his his opponents and these bad guys because he because he essentially was trying to get an information to, for lack of a better term, snitch him out to the to the to the cops. Well. Mm-hmm. That would require him to outthink them and get them to trap themselves in their own their own lies, not fight them head on like you know Batman does. So he was a good detective once again. How many of these kids? We're on number, episode number four. Every last one of these characters we've we've inducted into the lesson of you have been great detectives, haven't they? Right. And yeah, that's been one of their skill set. <laughs> yeah, recurring theme. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so anyway, I mean, it's um, you wanted to talk about the. Black Beauty, which I think is probably just as essential, especially once we saw it on the television show. Um, and I know you're a car guy, so right. so why don't you talk about the Black Beauty a little? Bit? Yeah, it was a Chrysler Grand Imperial was, was the model, and the Imperial was a, a a Chrysler model that went really through the fifties and into the sixties. It, it was kind of that uh, made to compete with some of the Cadillacs and such. It, it was the bigger. Uh, model, but by that time, I want to say it definitely would have been a V8. I want to say it would have been a 440 mm, V8 right. in that in them. And obviously, the car was tricked out by then. In the TV show, I think it had uh, missiles. There was also like uh, kind of a radar or uh, lighting technology where they could see in the dark uh, without mm-hmm. any sort of lighting at all. Correct. Right. There was also uh, in a couple episodes it deployed out of a secret compartment in the trunk was essentially a surveillance drone. Did you ever see any of those episodes? Like a little flying saucer? Yeah, and, vaguely. It, and Brick could drop a little uh, a little screen, you know, that popped out of the back seat because he would sit in the back and, and Kato would drive. It was bulletproof. Uh, it had uh, green running lights and green headlights. Mm-hmm. And that was actually became essential for the visualization on the show because I think one of the, one of the, one of the coolest things – one of the things everybody remembers about the Black Beauty is set, 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 run for silent, Cato, and he could flip a switch and it would make no noise. The car, you wouldn't hear the engine, the, the internal combustion engine run, and they could be stealthy that way. Uh, if you remember back to the first episode when we talked about the shadow and and in the creation of that character, they were trying to figure out something that they could do on radio that they could relate to the fans. This guy has powers and they came up with the idea that he could hypnotize people and he was invisible. Mm-hmm. You remember that discussion? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much what happened with Stryker and Trimble on, on black beauty was they were trying to figure out something, you know, when they would have critics come to them, well, aren't they going to hear the car? No, Kato's tricked it out. It can run silent. And they just would, you know, if you know anything about those early radio days, they had, a, you know, what are now called Foley artists were guys who did sound effects. They're the guys you would see, you know, clopping the, 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 the coconut shells to make horses, the sound of the horse hooves and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. They just simply would kill the, whatever sound they were making to sound like a car running. And then the audience would know, oh, wow, they, Black Beauty just went to silent. It's just simply something to work on radio. And then that translated over to the television show. And if you remember the television show, when Britt would tell Cato to set for silent, that's when the green headlights and the green running lights kicked on. That's how you knew that. If, even though you, you, you know, obviously you weren't hearing the engine. And that was always what I thought was the coolest. Of all the cool tricked out things that, that, that they had on the Black Beauty, the fact that it could run silent was the coolest for me. I don't know about for you. but Right, right. And one other thing uh, I did want to add about the TV show that linked it to <clears throat> the radio show was the character of Mike Axford. That was a character who was in the radio serial. Yep. And in the first episode of the TV show, he mentions, I don't, kind of more in passing, I think. It's one of those, if you blink, you miss it. But he tells Britt of the old days with Britt's father, you know, so implying that this is actually the son of the Green Hornet from 
from the radio show. Right, right. And, and I, I think that it was left purposely ambiguous by mm-hmm. the by the writers because I think they were trying to get this get this idea uh, across that he was actually the third generation of vigilante crime fighters in the family, not the second. Right. You know that that essentially Daniel took up the mantle from John, and then Britt took it up from his father. Daniel. Right. And, so, and there's also a possibility here because. Uh, this is kind of getting into the area where it might be a he he said he said type type thing because uh, it, it's kind of been co-credited between who actually created Lone Ranger. You know, there there seemed to be a discrepancy between Trendle's story and, and Stryker's story from time to time. This is really about the time where there's more of a distance between the two because of right. how rights went by. So they may not have tried too hard to link explicitly to the Lone Ranger because you could be talking about, you know, rights fees or copyrights and, and all that stuff. So they by leaving it ambiguous, they kinda have that covered in, in that corner, you know, in case any lawyers came hunting. Right. Well and and, and you know, I, I was sitting there singing the praises of Bruce and how much I loved Bruce and how awesome he was as Cato and choreographed mm-hmm. the fight scenes, which are amazing, are in and of itself worth going back and binge watching the show. Um this idea, because I started watching the Green Hornet on reruns. Gosh, I was probably single digits. I was probably seven, eight years old. So I just started yeah. reading Spider Man. And my dad, having, you know, remembering the Green Hornet, not being as big a fan of as he was the Lone Ranger, he was the one that clued me into this this whole history we're talking about of this shared universe heritage type thing. That just clicked with me as a young kid. Like, well, how cool is that? You know, mm-hmm. this is well before I, I knew anything about the Phantom and this whole lot, you know, the whole concept of the father to son type thing. And for whatever reason, I can't explain it, ladies and gentlemen, that concept has always been something I found cool in Heroes. Just me yeah. personally. I yeah, know, there's, yeah there's always a cool factor to me with a heritage and an honoring of a legacy and and, and stuff like that. Right. Right. You know, I don't know. They say us here in the South, we, we always hold on to the past too long. So maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Mm. It's just maybe that's the reason. But I just it I, that that fast. And I was already a fan of the Lone Ranger. And so when I found out, oh, this guy's the Lone Ranger's great nephew. How cool is that? You know, and and um, I just I just absolutely think it, it, it was just, mm. that was just so cool to me. And then he had a car that ran silent. And then he had Bruce Lee as his, as, as his, as his partner, you know, just beating the crap out of guys. I'm going, what is there here not to like? That was what my, what my little eight or nine year old mind was thinking, you know, and right. it just grew more as I continued to. And obviously with it only being one and a half, one, one and a half seasons, I've seen all the episodes of Green Hornet multiple times. I can't remember, but a handful of them. But when I jump back in and watch them and I inherit and, and inevitably do about once every year or so. Oh, I remember this episode. I remember that episode. That's the yeah. Same with Batman, too. You know, I'm right. sure you're the same way when you watch Adam West Batman. You're like, oh, I'd forgotten this episode. This is a good episode. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I I do remember them all because really for for my uh, TV growing up, and uh, if you're listening to the other Geekville radio shows that we have, you're going to notice a connection here. Uh, Channel 32 <laughs> would show the Batman reruns uh, after school a lot. Uh, and 32 is now our, our, our Fox affiliate. But in those days, it was purely just a UHF station. And one of the shows that they used to show a lot was the monkeys and Batman. So, you know, you're kind of seeing things coming together here. And Green (laughs) Hornet, I want to say, was on channel 60. And I think it later became 50. It's the uh, CW affiliate now, I believe. Mm. Uh, It might have even joined with with UPN and all all that. It's uh, way back then, long before CW came along, it was all the UHF stuff. But anyway... So that was kind of my collection, but Batman to me at the time was cooler. And you know, I was in grade school, so I didn't quite get that they were trying to be funny. I just thought it it was. And the cars right. were cool. I mean, even back then, right. before becoming a car guy, I thought the car looked cool. That 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 right. little Chrysler and then the Batmobile, you know, being a Lincoln underneath, you know, that blew my mm. mind when I realized that. But that's uh, a whole well, other I, th- rant. I, I think. 
I think our listeners get a recurring theme. We're always talking about vehicles. Yeah, we both like cars. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, we, we, I mean, we we've bandied about the idea. Just full transparency, listeners. We've been dating about this idea of like top ten coolest cars and all our vehicles and all of geekdom. And we've we've thrown in things like you know the A Team van, the Black Beauties, and the Batmobile, the Millennium yeah, Falcon, Rider, the Enterprise, you know. <laughs> Knight Rider, General Lee. So heck, mm-hmm. we've talked about half of those already. So I mean, <laughs> so. I mean and the the funny thing is that of all those, I mean, obviously there were spaceships in there, right? Mm-hmm. But about half of the ones we just listed were like old American muscle cars from the 1950s to 1970s. <laughs> I oh, digress. Yeah. I think that might be give away our listeners the knowledge of what kind of cars you and I like as well. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, I had heard a story about Black Beauty. We were talking about cars back to Black Beauty. There was a reason why they picked a Chrysler, but I can't remember why. But they did want that luxury model you're talking about. Remember, the whole idea was to the public and to the criminal world, the Green Hornet was a crime lord. Right. And so it kind of fit for him to be chauffeured around in a big luxury car like that. You know, And, and so. one other thing, not, not to get uh, carried away on cars here, but you also have to realize cars like the GTO or the Mustang or the Camaro, those were considered small cars for, the, for their days. I mean, you compare right. a GTO to... A car today and it looks huge but you compare right. it to other cars from the mid 60s and it was actually considered very small so right, right. back then the limos uh, to steal a line from mr science theater you know some of those old buick roadmasters it's like that's like a full acre of car right there you know? yeah i mean you sit in the back seat and you can stretch your feet out and, and then you might touch the back of the front seat, you know, right? Exactly. I mean, you're, you're, you gotta remember you're only what, eight, 10, 12 years removed from the old Studebaker roadsters, you know, right. this were a truly a family yeah. car. The car was supposed to be a limousine <laughs> back then, you know, exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, how we are here in America, we, we, we bigger, we got that Texan mentality, the bigger, the better, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's that's just something about those V8s, those 440 engines though. You know, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, partial myself to the Hemis that came along in the 70s but oh, yeah. i digress probably why i like the general lee so much but once again i digress <laughs> 440 you know <laughs> yeah it was a 440 yeah yeah but i mean you you know as well as i do dodge was putting Hemis in, underneath the hoods of those at that time too that's around that oh, yeah. time period so mm-hmm. but anyway we, uh, we, we get back to the green hornet um you did a lot of re- research how how many t- i know because i've read them before in your research, how much did he go into print? I know there were limited runs of comics and stuff like that. Uh, what did your research find out about uh, that? Anything? There really wasn't that much in the way of comics in the 60s. I mean, they did exist, uh, not nearly on the level of the Lone Ranger. Uh, the main comic series that I wanted to talk about here didn't come along until the late 80s. 1989, there was a comic company called now comics mm-hmm. and they kind of had the gimmick where it was a lot of other properties right they had like uh ghostbusters comics and i think they had a couple did shadow didn't they do the shadow a couple yeah, times? i believe they did have the shadow as well uh but they had gotten the license for green hornet and here's where it gets interesting uh, for me at least is they went to the trouble of trying to retcon a lot of stuff uh, for all this lineage here and they turned it into kind of tales of the green hornet and mm-hmm. they changed it so that it was those generations of green hornets to the point where they even brought back the brit reed the second the who mm-hmm. would have been van williams character and van williams himself actually helped write some of those stories because really who's going to uh-huh. know more about the 60s the green hornet trade them yeah, than the man who played it. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, I, th- I think Van Williams' portrayal of the Green Hornet, at least in the popular uh, conscious, is not that dissimilar from Clayton Moore's portrayal of the Lone Ranger. When mm-hmm. you say to a casual fan, especially someone our age or, or, or someone of our parents' age, who's the Green Hornet? Van Williams is who they're going to imagine. Am I wrong? No, no, not at all. I often say you can tell the age of somebody – even if you're not looking at it, by asking who who's Superman, if they say Cavill, Christopher Reeve, or George Reeve, you kind of get an idea of how old they are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, fair that enough. Kind of thing. I think I do remember that run though now, because you're talking around the time that I was heavy into. I mean, th- here's a little to show show my geek card. 
for geeks our age, I'll understand this. I was going to my, my local comic book store once a week because I had a pull box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you had a pull box and a pull list, younger listeners, you don't know what we're talking about. Ask your uncle, your your po- folks. They'll explain what a pull box was at a comic book store. But you're a geek my age, so you know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Right, right. <laughs> but really, the only discrepancy that was done in this Now Comics uh, retcon was they did bring in the Lone Ranger into it, but due to the Lone Ranger being licensed to another uh, company, they couldn't use that name. So they used a, a likeness and they used a full face mask to depict the Lone Ranger. Uh, I bet he looked like, like Clayton Moore, though, didn't he? <laughs> right, right. It, 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 was, it was not the, the classic look. It was more like those those serials uh, from, the, from the 30s. And they even had the, the gravesite and such. But they even would have the Van Williams Green Hornet come out of retirement to fight alongside his son, Paul Reed, who was now the Green Hornet for the 80s, early 90s. So they kind of had that multi-generation thing now. So the Green Hornet was was rapidly becoming the Phantom, basically. (laughs) Right. Yeah, pretty much. And maybe that was an inspiration. You know, it's very possible. Yeah, sure. But that ran until the mid-90s. Either, I don't know if the license ran out or if they just weren't selling or, or what, but there really weren't any Green Hornet comics until just a few years ago when a comic company we've been talking about almost every episode now, Dynamite Comics, they picked up the license and started running Green Hornet series. And probably the most common one that people read now is they did do a crossover with DC. I believe Kevin Smith wrote it, where it was a crossover of the 1966 Batman with Green Hornet. And I think, who, who's the artist I'm trying to think of did the painting? Alex Ross. Um, Alex Ross. A- Alex Ross did the art for it. The watercolor stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very realistic and true to life. Right, right. And one of my favorite artists, by the way. I love his work. And really, the only other thing we could talk about as far as uh, Green Hornet Legacy, we, we, I think we kind of have to talk about it, as we already brought it up before, but that 2011 movie with Seth Rogen, uh, I still haven't seen the movie. I, I tried to make it a point to sit down and watch it before I talked about it. It says, I've heard mixed stuff about the movie. It definitely seemed to kind of tread the waters of both it being action and being a comedy i think really Mm -hmm. with seth rogan being part of it people were just expecting it to be a comedy so they were probably writing to that expectation Uh, yeah i have seen it and i only seen it like once maybe twice and it was a while back it was you know back around i think i saw it like on when it was on hbo after it came out so you're talking probably like 2012 so it's been you know over five years since i've seen it I, my personal opinion, I do remember this, was it did tread the – some of the action scenes were really good, um, but they weren't really done for action. They were done more – it was like we were talking about with Raimi and, and Bruce Campbell. They were trying to, I think, cross that line between action, adventure, and, and comedy, and that can work. You know, I mean uh, the Die Hard movies I think are great examples of that, you know, where there's a lot of comedic – but it, when, the, when they get down to the action, it's real action. They never really did that in this movie. Um, they really timed, they really played up this idea that the Green Hornet was kind of a bumbling idiot. Britt Reed was kind of a bumbling idiot. They modernized it and essentially made Seth Rogen, who plays Britt Reed, they make him the spoiled rich kid who never worked in his life and inherited the, t- the newspaper and didn't really deserve it. And he was fed up because he knew he had some substance to him. And that is essentially why he took up the Green Hornet mantle. It wasn't anything about a family heritage or a, a sense of, of trying to right wrongs, which is how, of course, it was presented for years. That's why Britt Reed did what he did. He, he was a good, upstanding, decent man who just wanted to help. And he had a family heritage to and, de- and legacy to live up to. This one was more of a guy trying to do something for kind of self-serving reasons, you know, just to make people so he felt good about himself that he could he could do something serious. And they really played up the idea that he was completely inept and Cato was really, really the one that was doing everything. And I, I get it. Even if you go back to the old radio show, Cato 
like I said, Cato was the one that did all the fighting, and he's the one that created all the gadgets. But they never presented Britt Reed as dumb. Britt was the was was the brains and the money behind the operation. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and uh, one every- thing I wanted to mention here because uh, you, you triggered the thought that I meant to talk about uh, when talk about the Now mm-hmm. Comics. One of the things that was brought about in uh-huh. the Now Comics retconning, I, I hinted at it earlier about the uh, changing of the nationality to Korean for Cato. The story they that they changed it to was, yeah, that Brit just started telling people that he was Korean for that reason, so that Cato wouldn't get put into an internment camp. Which actually makes sense. Right, right. I mean, you know, nobody's defending it, but it's just that's what would have happened. You're, you're, you're not ignoring history. You're accepting it for what it is, which I actually respect. Um, I think... You know, and, and and I've got no issues. Like I said, I think I think that they just played up too much. That Cato was like the everything. The Green Hornet was a joke essentially, and Cato was the Bamf. You know, mm-hmm. and as big a Bruce Lee fan as I am, a biggest fan as I am of the character Cato, I don't think it was ever presented that way before. And I wonder if that turned some people. I know it turned me and some of the other traditional Green Hornet fans off. And and, and I cannot remember the young actor's name who portrayed Cato. Uh, Jay Chow was the the actor. Is that the same actor that plays Sulu in the Abrams Star Trek verse? I don't believe so. Okay, okay. Well, regardless, I thought the young man did a good job, but he's trying to fill in many people's eyes the shoes of Bruce Lee. Not an easy thing to do, you know? <laughs> we talked about this with the Lone Ranger stuff. Not that Army Hammer was bad. In many people's eyes, the Lone Ranger is and always will be Clayton Moore. Right. Yeah. Uh, just to answer the question, uh, Sulu was John Cho, a.k.a. Harold and Harold and Kumar. Right. Right. That's right. Like I said, well, I don't think the guy did a bad job, but he mm-hmm. wasn't Bruce Lee. <laughs> right. Well, guess right. what? Brandon was even smart enough. You know, Bruce's own son, not to try to be his dad. You know, in his brief career, you can see that in the roles that he chose. I, I don't ever I could never see Bruce doing something like Showdown in Little Tokyo or The Crow. That just right. wasn't Bruce's style. You know, but Brandon was great in both those. So I think that had it going against it. I also think it was, uh, if you remember, there were a lot of tie-ins. Like I want to say it was with Subway or Burger, one of the one of the, the fast food chains. I I feel it was one of those that the studios pushed really hard, thinking that oh, this could be a franchise. Mm-hmm. Seth Rogen's hot. He's 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 young. He's funny, and it just didn't work out. We well, we we talked about that when we talked about the Shadow. I think they 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 saw the shadow the studios did as you know uh, an opportunity to create a franchise and it just didn't work out that way and it wasn't right. for, it was a bad movie or a bad cast it just didn't really catch the 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 zeitgeist to, for lack of a better term you know mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was unfortunate because I wanted it I wanted to like it I wanted it to work but it just it what it didn't have the charm that Van Williams and Bruce Lee did and that's nothing against uh, against Seth Rogen and uh what was the what was the young other actor's name again uh, just, Jay I, Chow Jay Chow I mean just you know they just they aren't Bruce Lee and they're not they're not Van Williams and and when you're trying I wonder I wonder also when we bring up the the comparisons that are inevitable between the 66 Adam West Batman and and the same era Van Williams Green Hornet one being serious, one being camp. Were they trying to split the difference when they did it as a comedy? You know, because so many people can't delineate in their minds. I don't know. I'm speculating here, but I wonder. And like you, like you brought up, Seth. I mean, Seth Rogen was a guy who is known for being a comedic actor, and so that may have been something the studio pushed. I don't know. Right. I do feel this. Having heard Seth do interviews about the movie before and after it came out, I do believe Seth Rogen is a Green Hornet fan. I think he read the comics. I think he watched the show when he was growing up on reruns like we did. I don't think Seth Rogen went into that movie trying to disgrace the Green Hornet or make the Green Hornet bad. I really don't. Right. You know? Because he did help write it. So, you know, he is partially responsible for how it it was depicted. Right. Right. So, I mean, I think think he tried to modernize it, uh, and it just didn't translate well for whatever reason. But, I mean, that's obviously the – the most current incarnation of the Green Hornet to a lot of people. Um, I, I think much like I do with the shadow, I think we will probably see another Green Hornets film somewhere down the line. What say ye? I, I agree. Yeah. I think it's only a matter of time. It might be I mean, 
another decade or two, but it'll happen. Again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just like just like we just saw when we talked the Lone Ranger. You had all this this you know this long hair as a television show. They do a movie in the early eighties. It bombs. It took how long till we got the Bruckheimer one a few years ago? That was mm-hmm. almost thirty years. So you know. We we might not see it until we're we're retired, but I get a feeling we're probably going to see another screen adaptation of of, of Green Hornet at some point, just like I do with, with the Shadow. But I digress. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests do not reflect the views of GeekvilleRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren podcast, family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders, all rights reserved. Public enemies that even the G-Men cannot reach. The Green Hornet. And I do hope you liked this look into the Green Hornet. We're only a third of the way through the month. That means we've got two-thirds of the month left to go. A lot of fun stuff to come we are geekville radio we can be found at geekvilleradio.com or on the podcast platform you're choosing we're on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher iHeartRadio, spotify you name it you can find us just by doing a search for geekville radio and there's also a subscribe link on the geekvilleradio.com page you can follow us on social media facebook twitter and instagram are all geekville radio Give us a review. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we're not doing so well. Always looking for improvement. So with that said, I'm going to power down the lights here in the Geekville Radio studio. We'll talk to you folks again tomorrow for our 11th episode of National Podcast Post Month 2023.